All right, as we continue our study in Mark's Gospel, let's turn to chapter 3. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses, really kind of two sections that we're going to be considering this morning. And as we read this, I want to help you start to even get your mind moving in the direction of, of personalizing uh, these these verses, these, uh, these thoughts, as you read. And to do that, I want to invite you to ask the question, who are the villains in this passage? And the harder part, how am I like them? I don't know if you were like me as a boy growing up, I would sit and listen to stories taught in church, you know, sermons preached, and I would imagine myself right there with the heroes in the story, right? Um, being one of the heroes, or sometimes my mind wasn't on the story at all, and I was imagining some other daydream, you know, hero story that I was at the center of. That's not what we're doing today. I think Mark's intent in this passage is for us to, to, to look in the mirror of some negative responses to Jesus and see how we might do the same thing sometimes. So let's read the passage. And um, just remembering, uh, right at the end last week, remember what happened, right? Jesus is in another confrontation with the Pharisees, and he concludes it. The confrontation was about, you know, can you pluck a grain in the field on the Sabbath, the day of rest? Is that work? And Jesus says, the Son of Man himself, kind of identifying himself with the Old Testament Messiah, right? The Son of Man, that language he is the Lord of the day of rest, the Sabbath, right? So he just says that, and now we come to this section. So let's, uh, let's read Mark 3, 1 through 12. So again, he entered the synagogue, probably in Capernaum, and a man was there with a, a withered or paralyzed hand. And they, being the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here, which literally was calling him right into the middle of the room, probably. And he said to them, so, so he invites the man into the middle, and then he turns again and looks at the Pharisees, and he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So that's kind of our, our first scene and then we transition to this next section is kind of a summary statement that Mark gives of Jesus's ministry during this time. And it kind of helps transition between two sections in, in the book. So uh, in verse 7, then we read, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. 
When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. These 12 verses are are kind of packed full with a, a bunch of ironies as we read through them. I mean, you have, I mean, just what we just read, right? The popularity of Jesus is expansive. People are coming from everywhere to hear him. And yet when the unclean spirits cry out, you're the son of God, he's silencing them. Uh, it just That's just one example. And so as we work through this passage, we're going to, uh, we're going to be struck by a lot of ironies. Um, remember with me up to this point, if you can just turn back to chapter 2 for a minute, we've already seen four confrontations of Jesus, where, where, or confrontations where Jesus and the Pharisees or the crowds are in some ways at odds with one another. Four different scenes. And in each one of those scenes, there's something similar that happens with, with each of them, the way Mark presents them to us. What he does is he kind of he kind of crystallizes the, the major point of each of those scenes with a quotation of Jesus, where he's making this grand statement about his identity or his, his mission. So look at verse 10, for example. Um, you remember the story of Jesus healing the man in the house where the friends dropped him through the roof, right? And how does Jesus summarize that whole exchange and what it's all about? He says, so that the son of man, I'm sorry, I should look at it. Um, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, what does he do? He tells the man to rise up, take up his bed, and go home, right? So that, that summary statement is right there in the conflict between the Pharisees in that moment. And then continuing on in, in verse 17, um, right, Jesus has called Levi, a guy that nobody wants to be a part of the in crowd because he's a tax collector, he's a sinner, he's, he's somebody who's an extortioner, who's hated in society, and Jesus is spending time with him. The Pharisees don't like it, the crowds don't like it. What does Jesus say in response to that? He says, the, the, the well, the, the, I'm not, I'm, I shouldn't try and paraphrase, paraphrase these. He says, um, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So you see how Mark, he, he's, he's in all of these confrontations, he's like giving these just grand statements from the mouth of Jesus himself, summarizing who he is and, and what he's come for. Next, we see in the conflict about, um, or in the question about why Jesus' disciples don't fast, Jesus says, look, you know, when the groom is there at the wedding reception, uh, nobody can say, you know, I'm, I'm fasting today, right? And so he's, again, saying something about himself, that he's central to, to the story. And, and then um, we ended last week, like we already mentioned, with the statement, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So we see those, in those four different confrontations, we see that kind of, like, it's like the spotlight. Mark is putting the spotlight on who is Jesus and, and what is he here for, Right? And then in this scenario, 
Jesus asks this question. What, what's the question he asks in this story that we just read in, in, um, in chapter 3 and verse 4? Jesus asks the question, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Right? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a trap of a question, isn't it? And he asks this question, but, but does he really answer it? Do we have the same kind of focal point on Jesus' identity and mission in this section that we had in the other ones? Not, not really. Matthew actually records Jesus' answer in his gospel to this question. But Mark doesn't. Because Mark's focus, I, I mean, it sounds funny to say this almost, Mark's focus at this point is shifting from just putting the spotlight on who Jesus is and it's shifting to how are people responding to him. And so that's really what he's asking us to do as we look at this passage is, is look at how people are responding to, to Jesus and to think about that for ourselves as well. So that kind of brings us to our big idea this morning. Um, all of the revelation that we've been hearing about Jesus is not, even as we've been studying through it, it's not being given to us just so that we can know historical facts about this man, Jesus Christ. They're, they're, they're not being given to us just so that we can even know um, our, our Bibles better. The, the Gospel of Mark as we study it together, really is an invitation for each of us to have a direct encounter with the, with the man and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as he's revealed to us in his word right now. And so even the way Mark sets this up, showing us the responses of other people is like an open invitation for us to, to come in the door and, and even do that work I was talking about. Like, how do you identify yourself in the, the negative responses to Jesus? Mark is eager for us, not just to hear these words, but to engage with them in that kind of way, asking, okay, what do I do with Jesus? So the question we're going to try to answer this morning is a simple one. And really, this is one of the difficulties of studying through a book like Mark. He uses some of the same kind of big themes over and over again. So chapter 4, you know what chapter 4 is all about? It's the story of the, it's the par- one of the main parables that Mark uses. It's the parable of the sowing of the, the seed and the soils. And it's all about different responses to Jesus, right? So whoever ends up stuck teaching chapter four, I'm already going to ask the question that chapter is about how, how should we respond to Jesus? <laughs> you know, so Mark just keeps on coming back to these, but he gives us different angles and there's, there's different things to focus on. Um, but I really think that is the question we need to be focusing on this morning is how should we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the title of this book. That's the, the, what, what Mark is trying to do in this book. So how should we be responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I think the way that this passage answers this question is first by showing us two negative responses. So we're going to look at the two negative responses and then, and I'll be honest with you, I've struggled uh, as I've studied this trying to know how best to structure and think about these three responses. So there's two negative responses and then there's a third response that is ironically positive, okay? The third response just kind of, you know, the first response is by the Pharisees, right, where they're rejecting him and ready to destroy him. The second response is by the crowds moving to him to the point of crushing him, right? We see that in, the, in this, the passage we read. And the last response is by, who's the last response by? 
by the unclean spirits, right? And so it's ironic that the most positive response we see in this passage is coming from the, the unclean spirits. Please understand, I'm not necessarily convinced that they were um, pure in their motives in their response. That's not what I'm arguing. But Mark is using, ironically, their positive statement of Jesus' identity to point us in a direction of how we should respond, even if, you know, I'm not intending to say we should behave like the unclean spirits, okay? Just to be clear right from the, right from the beginning. Um, so let's, uh, let's begin with this question. How should we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? First, looking at verses 1 through 6. Don't be hypocritically too good for Jesus like the Pharisees. Okay, so it's a negative statement of how we shouldn't respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be hypocritically too good for the good news of Jesus. Notice the irony in this passage, right? I just mentioned those three different responses to Jesus, the Pharisees, the crowds, and the unclean spirits. If it were you, who would you have your strongest response to in those three groups? Um, Like, if you were standing in the place of Jesus and you were engaging with those three different audiences, who would you expect Jesus to be most animated and aggressive and attacking? Okay, so there's, why would you say that? Okay, good, because of their leadership and because of their their role of influence. Um, But at the same time, we would expect Jesus to be very much at war with satanic forces. Because everyone knows they're wrong. Because everybody knows they're wrong. Some people think that the Pharisees aren't wrong. Right, and and you're kind of coming to this with pre-understanding about how we should look at the Pharisees and their errors. But even, I mean, if we were really in that moment, I think we would expect the, the greatest evil. What, what, what's the greatest evil that we could see there in, in these scenes? I mean, how could you say anything's worse than the unclean spirits, right? And yet, we see Jesus' response to the Pharisees here to clearly be the strongest, the harshest. Uh, we don't usually think of anger in association with Jesus, I think, but here he's angered by the religious leaders. These really were, in their day, they were the, the culturally conservative, the, the moral good guys in Israel. They were the teachers of the Old Testament scriptures. And so we might expect Jesus' anger to be directed at the unclean spirits, but here it's aimed at the Pharisees. So, looking again at the passage here, uh, you just can see how much Paul or Paul Mark toggles between what's happening, and he, and he just rapidly gives us the details of this story. You you can see. Well, why don't we why don't we do this more as a as an activity than as uh, me just kind of walking through it? As you look at the details of this passage in verses one through six, what would you use to describe some of the characteristics of the Pharisees here in this moment? How would you describe him? Adjectives or describe their behavior? What do you what do you see about the Pharisees here in this moment? Yeah, yeah, they're they're entrapping Jesus, right? So their motives are not sincere in any sense. They're, they're, they don't have open ears to listen. What else would you what do you say about them? 
in this moment. There's a lot we could use to describe them. I'm sorry? Plotting. They're plotting. Yeah, definitely. And you see that in the beginning where they, you know, it seems like maybe this guy, the, the text doesn't say, but it almost seems like this guy could have been planted there in the room. Uh, maybe not, but they knew he was there. The Pharisees knew he was there and they were watching to see what Jesus would do. So there's the plot on the front end and on the back end, right? They went to these people, the Herodians, and made some plans with them. We'll talk about that in a second. What else do we see about what the Pharisees are like here in this section? There's something about them remaining silent when Jesus asks that question. Yeah, yeah. Like they're yeah. more concerned with what people think of them mm-hmm. than saying what's true. Yeah. And they're not willing. There's a willingness in that silence, too. Like, um, they, they know what it would mean to answer this question one way or another, and they, they won't do it. Yeah. Jesus actually says they're hard-hearted. What, what does that mean, hard-hearted? It means stubborn, right? It means unbelieving. It's actually, in the New Testament, often used as a summary statement for, for that kind of spiritual condition of unbelief. It, it means you're not responding to, like, you know, if you, if you think physically about a heart, it's not responding to the, the flow of blood to, um, to stimuli, right? It's, uh, it's, it's dead. Um, so they're hard-hearted. W- what about their attitude toward this man with the withered hand? They don't care about him. They're using him. They're using him. They're dehumanizing him. They're... They're, they're only concerned about him for their own ends. They don't care about his well-being, right? Um, what, what else can we say about the Pharisees here in this moment? What are they concerned about? Okay, they're concerned about getting Jesus. So there's a, um, there's a, a murderous intent in their hearts. What, what else? are they concerned about protecting what are they trying to why are they mad at Jesus okay so we have legalism they're trying to protect themselves and their own authority their own power but but what is it that they're guarding so much the Sabbath law specifically the law the Sabbath law and um, isn't I mean like I'm looking for the word hypocrisy (laughs) right like they are so concerned about guarding the Sabbath law, and yet they're murderous in their hearts on the Sabbath, right? This is, um, this is the height of, of moral hypocrisy. What, what, what is hypocrisy? We, we toss the term around, we accuse people of it, but what really is hypocrisy? There's, a, there's an author, Oz Guinness, he's, um, he's defined hypocrisy as like, it's like, he says something to the effect of it's, it's a lie told with your actions or with your deeds where your behavior betrays what you say your commitment is, right? Um, so the, the Pharisees claim to be the guardians of the law of Moses. Um, I, I seem to remember something in the Ten Commandments about, you know, about murder in there somewhere, Right? And so they're, they're, they're so concerned about protecting the Sabbath law uh, that they're ready to, to destroy the one who gave it, uh, to destroy the one who created in six days and rested. 
they want to they want to kill the lord of the sabbath the one who created it because they think he's broken the sabbath so this is the this is the picture of the pharisees that we we get here as soon as you read this story i don't think your first natural inclination is to identify yourself with the pharisees right um and and honestly being so distant from their history and from their cultural background, it's very hard to identify myself with the Pharisees. But once we start talking about spiritual hypocrisy, we should recognize that there are inclinations in our heart that go the same direction. Uh, lately, I've been reading, uh, very slowly, reading the, um, the biography of missionary John Patton. He was a guy who lived, he was from um, Scotland, and he lived in the 1800s. I think he went to the New Hebrides Islands out in like the South Pacific uh, somewhere around 1840 is maybe when he went there first. And he went to islands that were inhabited by cannibals, these tribes. And as I was reading those stories and thinking about this passage, there were chiefs who ruled over you know, villages in, on the island of Tana. And these chiefs, they, they were nothing like the Pharisees in one sense. Like they hadn't received God's revelation through the Old Testament, right? They were not concerned about spiritually protecting God's revelation to his people through the, you know. So there's a lot of difference. But there are a lot of ways in which they exercise their authority with the same kind of hypocrisy. Um, there are a lot of ways in which they would, they would claim, this is, these are my principles and this is how I will, I will live my life. And then, and then they would do exactly the opposite. And so even, even in an entirely pagan environment, we will see many ways in which the hypocrisy of the Pharisees get reflected. I mean, I think we can see in in the shame culture that we live in America today, in, in social media, where people are attacking one another about, you know, not doing certain things in certain ways, just according to the, the cultural expectations of the day, and yet they themselves don't live by those same standards, right? That kind of hypocrisy is, is something that is very much contemporary for us, even if we aren't identified with the particular group of the Pharisees that we find here. And it's certainly a dangerous spiritual reality for us to consider for ourselves. And what we see in the, the Pharisees' response to Jesus here is something that we really should guard our hearts against as well. And, and we should recognize how, how much our own dependence on ourselves and our impression of our goodness and our blindness to our sinfulness keeps us, can keep us, from the good news of Jesus Christ, right? There is a, a anger that Jesus has towards the Pharisees, but there's also a grieving that Jesus has towards the Pharisees. And, and I, I love to recognize that while Jesus is most pointed in attacking the Pharisees, he's also investing a ton of time in trying to rescue the Pharisees from their own sin. And I'm reminded of the moment down the road here in, in the New Testament where Paul is walking on the road to Damascus and he encounters the Lord of the Sabbath, right? He encounters this, this one 
who confronted the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And he calls Jesus to become his, or he calls Paul to become his disciple, uh, to become his apostle. And so there is, there is hope for, for us Pharisees. Uh, but we have to be ready to recognize, we, we need to set aside our, our hypocritical spirit, thinking that we're, we're too good for Jesus like these Pharisees did. His name is John Patton. Patton, like the German? P-A-T-O-N. Oh, no. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. So that's the first response. Uh, the first response of the Pharisees that we don't want to follow. And then let's go on. Um, you know, I, I shouldn't skip over uh, just a, a detail in the passage where the Pharisees get together with the Herodians and they consort about destroying Jesus. The, the Herodians aren't somebody that we're really familiar with. The New Testament doesn't talk about them a lot. They're only mentioned like twice in Mark, once in Matthew, I think. Um, and so we can't be 100% dogmatic about who they were. The, the name Herodian has the word Herod in there. And so we kind of assume that they were a politically motivated group that wanted to see the restoration of the Herods in the rule of Judea, of, of Israel in that day, right? kind of like up underneath the authority of Rome, but they wanted to see a, a Jewish king established again in, their, you know, in, their, in, in Israel. So um, some people emphasize that it's kind of a strange relationship between the Pharisees and the Herodians. Um, and in a sense, it, it might be like the Herodians probably more politically motivated, whereas the Pharisees more spiritually, religiously motivated. But they, in this case, both have kind of the same, the same goal. Um, they, they desire to see uh, their influence and their power established in Israel, and they, um, and they share this animosity against Jesus at this point. Uh, so let's, let's go on now and look at the second response that we see in verses 7 through 10. This second response, this is the response of the crowds to Jesus. And there's kind of a, a positive response that I'm kind of skimming over. Um, notice ver- right, right from the beginning, Jesus withdraws and then a great crowd comes out from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre and Sidon. Um, I went to check to see if our, our lovely map was still on the, on the whiteboard and it's not anymore and I'm not the artist who's going to put it back on there. So uh, you'll have to imagine with me the ideas of these, these locations. Really what Mark is doing is he's describing this kind of from a center and extending out in, in layers to further distances that we wouldn't necessarily expect people to be coming to Jesus from. So they're, they're on the Sea of Galilee, on the, the north shore probably of the Sea of Galilee around Capernaum. And then this crowd of people, it says, are coming all the way from, well, they're from Galilee, of course, from Judea, which is the broader region there, and then even, even from Jerusalem, which is within Israel, but a fairly good distance to Capernaum. Then Idumea, which is not a common place for us. Probably, you know, you know the little um, kind of peninsular section of Egypt called the Negev? Um, that section that has like the Red Sea on one side and then... I don't remember the other body of water on the other. Um, 
sometimes it's referred to Edom. That's, that's the area down there. That's a, that's a fairly substantial distance from Capernaum. Um, still fairly Jewish, and yet there's other nationalities that would be there as well. But then beyond the Jordan, so now we're moving to the east, beyond the Jordan this way, and then to the north it says Tyre and Sidon, which are not immediately regions within the scope of Judea. Uh, they are going to be more like 35, 40 miles away from Capernaum, and they're going to start to be, in terms of population, much more Gentile. There would be Jewish population there in Tyre and Sidon as well, but um, there's a passage in Matthew, I think, where Jesus says, you know, if the signs that were done in Bethsaida and Chorazan had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. What, what Jesus is saying is, like, woe to you, Israel, that, that these Gentile locations are having a more positive response to my ministry than, than you are. And so what Mark is doing here is showing us a positive response in the sense of affirming the identity and mission of Jesus. Even though he's in the midst of this opposition, there are people who are flooding to hear him. So it's kind of this, this both and he's being attacked and yet there's this successful advance of his mission at the same time. So that's kind of a, a, a secondary response that we're not going to focus on as much. Now let's look at what that crowd of people wanted and what they were doing, uh, some of them, as they, they, as they came to him. So this is, um, this is kind of the, the second response that I want to emphasize. First, we were asking ourselves, you know, how should we respond to Jesus? Well, not like the Pharisees who thought they were too good for our Lord. But here, we don't want to respond like the crowd. We don't want to allow our, even our brokenness to cause us to miss the fullness of Jesus' mission. We don't want to allow our brokenness, our neediness, to miss the fullness of Jesus' mission. So notice what happens here. And this is just a simple observation from the passage. So he had to tell his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So you can kind of get the image of what's happening here, right? Remember um, that house in Capernaum was so packed that the friends had to take off the roof to get in, right? At another point, we're told that I think it was Peter's mother, Peter's house, Peter, Peter's, uh, his mother-in-law was sick in the house. At that house, like the people were just packed to the doors and, you know, it was just overwhelming. Well, now we can't even deal with any, any buildings, because it's just too much. The crowds are too many. So he's got to go out, you know, outdoors, seaside. So maybe even the natural boundary of the water can, you know, he can step into the water. They can have a boat close by because the crowd is so significant and they are in danger on some level threatening to crush him, um, to, to, to trample him. So, um, but one of the, the important things to, to think about when you look at this section of the, of the passage is, what are these people here for? What have they come to the seaside for? What was their intent? In particular, my question is, what is missing in terms of what they were after? So when we look at, at that, what, what are they motivated by to come to Jesus in this, in this moment? They want to be healed, right? They had... They had heard about all the things he had done, is the emphasis. Yeah. 
right? So what's missing in, and I mean, we have to be careful, like this is a huge crowd, and so I'm not saying everybody's motive was wrong, and I don't know what their heart was exactly, but Mark is emphasizing what they were there for. So what are they there for? They're there for healing, they're there for miracles, they're there for unclean spirits to be cast out. What are they not there for? Okay, spiritual, salvation, teaching, teaching, right? Earlier in Mark, we're told that his intent was, Jesus said, I have to pull out from this crowd to do what? To go to other cities to, to teach because that's what I came for, right? His mission in, in chapter 1 and verse 14 was to preach the gospel of the kingdom, of the coming, to repent and turn and believe, right? This is why Jesus came and yet that's not what people are directly seeking from him in this moment, right? There is a blindness of the crowd that is motivated by, uh, they, they have real needs. So I want to be careful as I describe this situation. Um, they have real physical needs. They have real substantial needs in their hearts. There's brokenness in their lives. And out of that, they're driven to, to pursue Jesus, but to pursue him to a point that, I mean, his mission is on some level threatened here. I mean, he's, he's the divine son of God. It's not threatened in that sense. But he's got to have a boat standing by so he's not crushed. So the, the will and desire of the crowd is in some ways put, placed at odds with his, with his mission here yet again. And, and my, my challenge for us by way of application is we have to be very care, careful that when we find ourselves in, it's so easy for us to do this, um, when we find ourselves in physical need, I mean, we joke about, you know, men who uh, can't handle being sick with a cold, right? And, and their, their wives, you know, just are like, these, these guys are insufferable. They're like babies. Um, because we're blinded by our physical pain and difficulty. And it's like the whole world shrinks to the size of that problem. And that's the only thing we see. Um, it's like, I remember, so we lived in China for a while, and there's an area in, in Shanghai that is called the Bund. And it's this huge, massive walking street, you know, like football fields long that goes alongside of a river. And at Chinese New Year, there's fireworks down there all the time. And I think it was around 20, like 2018 or 2019, there was a stampede that happened one of those evenings. And you're talking about millions of people who are down there. And, you know, it's, it's like when a, when a fire happens in a building, you know, the, the, the urgent need of my safety produces this kind of blind activity that is actually to your own harm in some way. Um, and I can, I can confess personally that there are, there are so many ways in our lives when we, when, we, when we experience things that we don't want or like in our lives that we can allow those things to become such substantial um, blockers, things that blind us to actually encountering the mission of Jesus in our lives. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? I'm not making the connection as clearly as I want to. Um, but uh, we can be so, we, our agenda for what we want from Jesus is so strong that we, that we miss what his intent is for us here and now. And so that's yet another challenge for us to, to avoid. Um, 
it may be that Jesus has no intention of resolving our problems in the way that we want him to. If that's all that we're seeking from him, then we're being a lot like this crowd. That's, that's the idea, I think, that we want to we wanna get at. We don't want our brokenness to hijack his mission. I was just thinking along those lines. Yeah. So often, like, when we're in trouble in some way, our only prayer is, get me out of this trouble. Right. Yeah. Instead of, like, what are the needs God showing me in right. this trial that he's designed for me? Yeah. And, and a friend comes along and says, you know, hey, God has better plans for you than just solving this problem for you. And your heart can turn hard like the Pharisees and say, I don't, I don't want that. I, I just want out. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it keeps us from what Jesus has for us, uh, what, whatever that may be. And we may not know what it is for a long time. All right, so there's two negative ways for us to respond. We need to wrap up this morning, and uh, this is ironic, but we're going to look at the unclean spirits, and the third, th- third response here, how should we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? We should soften our hearts. Okay, that's not really what the unclean spirits did, okay? I'm adding that <laughs> separately. But we should soften our hearts and unconditionally surrender to Jesus. When we read this last section in verses 11 and 12, we hear, um, whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. That statement, you are the son of God, is like the greatest declaration of Jesus' identity in the gospel of Mark. (laughs) And it's coming from the unclean spirits. That's what the father said about the son at his baptism. You are my beloved son, right? And, and here, it's the unclean spirits. It's the same thing the unclean spirit said in the synagogue already when he said, you are the Holy One of God. So what is happening here? Some commentators think that the unclean spirits were trying to control Jesus by saying his name and you know, expressing his identity. And I, I don't really get that when I read the passage. I don't see where that's coming from for, for, for sure. To me, what it sounds like, we've been doing a lot of basketball in our family and the season just ended this this last week but to me what this sounds like is it sounds like one team um beat the other team a hundred to zero the team that lost by a hundred like they still hate the team that beat them but they're like <laughs> we, we got nothing just absolute surrender because of a recognition of we can do nothing before this power and this authority. Does, does that make sense? So it's not, it's not particularly willing in the sense of, like, I mean, there's no worship from these unclean spirits when they say this to Jesus in, in affection, in love for Jesus. But there's this unconditional surrender because what else can we do before this power? And, and that's a remarkable feature of this passage pointing us to who Jesus is. So obviously there's, um, there's a lot of irony in this, the idea that the unclean spirits are, are teaching us better than anybody else. I need to wrap up, um, but I, I want to call out the, just the, the interesting feature here that um, Pharisees, crowds, 
unclean spirits, who would you identify as being the greatest threat to win an arm wrestling match with Jesus? The unclean spirits, right? Like if there's any power that could overcome Jesus at this point, it would be them. And here, they are just completely and absolutely surrendered to his authority because there's nothing they can do before him. And so when we think about our response to Jesus, um, I think one of the ways I've thought about this passage that's been helpful is um, we can work ourselves into scenarios in our lives where we, where we actually start to imagine that the power of Jesus is not sufficient to meet our needs. Um, and that can reflect itself in many different ways. Maybe there's sin in our lives that have, has become so dominant and controlling that we don't think we can ever overcome it. And we question whether the good news of Jesus could ever help either. Right? And, and here's an example of substantial demonic powers just crumbling and confessing. We, we've got nothing to do here. Complete surrender. This is the response that we're being invited to ourselves in this, in this moment as we think about this passage. And I add a, a soft-hearted complete surrender not like these unclean spirits. So there's no one who's too good or too needy to surrender to Jesus. We need to cry out with these people who were broken by unclean spirits and testify that he is God's son who has come to do good. He's come to set us free from our sins. We don't want to be like the Pharisees, the crowds, and ultimately we don't even want to be like these unclean spirits who who surrendered just out of necessity. Let's just close with a, a, a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word and the time together in it. And I pray that your spirit would continue to help us uh, to, uh, to, to, to think about how we interact with, with Jesus and his identity and his mission. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, to respond well. Uh, Lord, there are, uh, there are constantly, even as believers, there's constantly areas in our lives in which we need to uh, take on this posture of, of complete and unconditional surrender. And I pray that you would help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.